Welcome to We Talk Banking Finance with Walkers, where we talk to colleagues and peers about the latest trends in offshore finance. Welcome to Walkers We Talk Banking and Finance podcast. I'm Zoe Hallam, Group Partner in the Guernsey Banking and Finance team, and delighted to be joined today by my co-host, Alex Wickens, Senior Counsel in the Guernsey team also. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Zoe. Yeah, I'm very delighted to get a call up to co-host my first full podcast. And uh, we've got a really interesting theme today. We're going to be talking all things Islamic finance. And I'll hand back over to Zoe to introduce our guest for today. Thanks, Alex. And today we're joined by Shaquille Adley. Uh, His name will be familiar to many of our listeners as a preeminent Islamic finance lawyer, many years spent in private practice at Clifford Chance and Norton Rose Fulbright, and then most recently Global Head of Islamic Finance from 2016 to 2022 at CMS. At the end of 2022, Shaquille left private practice and dedicated himself full-time to his new business venture, Zunique. Uh, Shaquille, have I have I missed anything out? Is there anything you need to add in there? Firstly, thanks ever so much for the very kind uh, invitation and also the very kind introduction. I think that does sum up in a nutshell my uh, professional career to date. So really split into two phases. The first phase being around about 18 or 19 years working in various international law firms, uh, most recently, as you mentioned, with CMS. Um, and since the start of this year, so 2023, I've focused on growing Zunique as a property development and investment business in the UK. Shaquille, welcome to, to the podcast. It's great to catch up with you again. As we've already established, I think you, you set up your new venture in, in, in 2019, and you sort of carried it along in the background whilst working at CMS. But last year, you you took the plunge, you took the leap, stepped away from, from the law, from that thriving practice at CMS. So I guess we'd just be really interested to know a little bit about what it is that made you decide to step away from the law and embrace this new challenge. I think there were a multitude of factors and actually it didn't have anything to do with dissatisfaction with my previous role. In fact, I I feel incredibly privileged to have been a partner at CMS and it's a a firm that I hold in really high esteem. Really, there's three reasons why I've chosen to, to leave the legal profession. The first of those is, and, and really the driving force behind the business, is a desire to do good. And what I mean by that is to help create communities and legacies uh, that empower people and the environment and using real estate as a facilitator for change. Now, I appreciate that all sounds very laudable. And I think that what I've wanted to do is use my professional skill set. Um, so I've been working professionally on UK real estate since 2007. And I've also had exposure to real estate in places like the Middle East in Germany, in the US, amongst others, and combine that with a family history of investing into real estate since 1998, and then have those two facets come together to deliver change. So that that was really the rationale around why I wanted to launch Sunique. And also, I think there is a real opportunity for someone to bridge that gap, I think, between kind of SME uh, developers and SME providers of of real estate and the kind of PLCs and the large national house builders. So again, there was, I think, uh, a desire to do good using real estate and then also an opportunity which has been identified or I've identified, which I think we, we as a business are very well placed to be able to delve into and then hopefully do do real positive substantive change through that through those endeavours. That probably leads us quite well back into sort of the Islamic finance um, discussion. I mean, obviously, 
the the difference in Islamic finance and traditional finance are the key principles that underpin it, you know, derived from Sharia law. You talk about the desire to do good, and obviously that um, is one of the concepts underpinning um, Sharia law. Are there other principles that you brought into your new business? And, you know, speaking to you prior to this podcast, we discussed a little bit about ESG and, and the importance of that. Can you sort of explain what ESG principles as well that you're applying to the new business? Yes, of course. So when I was mentioning about using a technical skill set, that involves obviously Islamic finance and the principles that underpin Islamic finance. And as you as you mentioned, Zoe, it's very much about using business and finance as a way of improving economies more generally and societies. And that comes really from a prophetic tradition where the prophet, uh, peace be upon him, was himself a trader. So there's very much within Islamic finance an ethos, which is that you you use business to do good. And so that's very much what we've brought into Zanika as, as an offering. So we want to essentially do what I would describe as venture philanthropy. So you are using finance, you're using the the ability to generate profits using real estate, but improving returns, not only for us as a business and for obviously investors, but also for the wider community. And so the principles that exist and the kind of the intention behind Islamic finance, i.e. to do, to be productive with one's money and one's wealth, is exactly what underpins us. Beyond that, I think there's a huge, uh, there's a significant overlap between general Islamic finance and also ESG. And so what I thought I'd do is, if it's okay, just give an example or two from each of those components of ESG and actually explain how we as a business adopt them. Now, oftentimes I find when people talk about ESG, it's oftentimes not really very well understood what we're actually referring to and how that impacts real estate. So if we deal with the environmental, so the E component of ESG first, and again, I'll try to use examples or I'll give examples from us as a business and how we apply those principles. We are very attuned to the potential harm that developments can cause upon the environment and particularly through the release of carbon in the build process. And so one of the ways that we've looked to reduce that carbon impact, for example, and and help mitigate against some of the effects of climate change is using modern methods of construction, including, for example, brick slips and cold pouring techniques, which then reduces the need to produce bricks in kilns. Those, Those brick slips can be poured on site. Uh, and then it also reduces the amount, uh, reduces the build program. So a site that we're currently looking at in Birmingham, uh, we've been able to reduce the build program from 24 months down to 17 months by using modern methods of construction with the additional bonus that we're reducing the amount of carbon emissions away that is associated with the development. Another example is biodiversity net gain. So as a business and every single site that we look at, we try to identify how is it that we can help improve the environment more generally, and particularly around biodiversity. So we are currently working on a on a a small scheme near Aylesbury, for which is a conversion of five barns. And so in that scheme, there is a bat license, and so there's a a desire to maintain uh, bat enclosure. Uh, So that's actually a license that's being transferred into my personal name. Uh, and as so far as I understand, has criminal uh, culpability associated with it. So we're very keen to ensure that we follow uh, that bat license and actually go beyond that. And so we have, as part of that scheme, a wildflower meadow, uh, which we'll be uh, installing, or introducing, and also maintaining. And I think through that, what you're actually what you're doing is encouraging uh, native species. You're encouraging biodiversity, and, and and from a purely business perspective, it actually enhances values. I think oftentimes there is this 
possibly misnomer that ESG principles have a cost, but not necessarily an associated benefit. Whereas actually, I think certainly in our experience, we've found that by leading front and center with ESG and, and generally Islamic financing or, or Sharia principles, it actually makes sites more marketable and, and makes them more profitable. So that's on the on the E component of ESG. With respect to the S components of social, that is very much about us wanting to do good and creating legacies. And so to give you an example, we're currently in the process of acquiring a development site from a local authority in a town centre location. And in that site, uh, we have designed a scheme which has ground, which has a ground floor where where most developers would have would have uh, installed or, or built a number of apartments. We're actually allocating the ground floor, which is around five thousand square feet, entirely to community use. So that will in all likelihood be used for things like homelessness, um, a food bank, uh, helping uh, young people with jobs and skills training. And and the rationale for that is because. We as a developer can put together a scheme which will remain profitable and remain very strongly profitable, but actually enhance the the provision that local authorities can provide and that the, the charitable sector can provide in local communities and, and identifying needs which are unmet. So we very much view that community space as a way of doing good and giving back to the communities in which we operate. With respect to the, the final uh, letter from the ESG, so, so governance, we ourselves and senior management team are all are all qualified solicitors. So we approach development very much from a professional perspective and from a regulated perspective, but we go beyond that. And what we've what we are very focused on as a business, for example, is gender balance. So just yesterday we were on the I was on the on the phone with the recruiter and I made very clear that we would like candidates. That we want the senior management team and throughout the business to be gender balanced. So it's, it should ideally be a 50-50 split across the business at all seniority so that we've not got a weighting towards one or the other. Now, in a sector like real estate, that's a little bit more challenging because real estate in particular is very uh, male dominated. But that's something that we're very conscious of and something that we are trying to ensure that we've thought about from really the, the growth stage of the business and throughout. Great, Shaquille. And we'll talk about the team in, in just a moment. I just want to carry on sort of on this theme of doing good, which you, you talked about at the outset and obviously is um, you know, a firm principle of the business. Your profits, I know you, you direct your profits to doing good. So can you just tell listeners a little bit about um, where the profits of the business are directed? Yes, of course, of course. Um, when I was thinking about launching the business and the purpose of the business essentially the DNA of the business is about doing good and using business to do good. The driving force behind that was how do we as a business impact communities, not only through the real estate, but through the wider offering. And for us, the conclusion was that we would like to donate 50% of profits to charity. And I remember when we publicly launched in April of, of this year, so 2023, I had an interview with a journalist and the journalist asked me, Everyone in lots of people in real estate say they want to do good, and, but what makes you different? And it was very much about the fact that it is part and parcel of what we do. And, and we are very clear that we will not do things that do not serve the wider good as we, as we understand it to be. And one of the ways that we uh, embody those principles or embody that messaging is by having a, a very public and stated desire to donate 50% of profits to charity. That really falls into three main uh, baskets or the ways that in which we do that. 
two of which are, are kind of monetary related, one of which isn't. So we are in the process of establishing a charitable foundation. The charitable foundation will um, donate the 50% of profits and it will, or sorry, will use the 50% of profits. And those will be used uh, for, in two main ways. The first is that it will support a charity of the year. So, and then the second way is that anyone that interacts with us as a business, anyone that essentially receives an email from a, from his unique address, every individual within the business will, will only ever have one signature block. And I know that there's a, a tendency uh, for email signature blocks to change fairly regularly. Whereas our stated aim is we will only ever have one signature block. And that signature block will always link through to our charitable foundation. And it will mean that anyone that we interact with professionally will be able to click on that link and ask us to donate a sum of £1,500 uh, to a charity of their choice. We're not going to put any restrictions around that other than making sure that the underlying charity is Charities Commission regulated and there are no political or religious affiliations. And our preference is for small local charities charities to be supported. And again, the rationale around that is that if you if you go through any village, town, city in the, in the UK, you will find small charity shops who do a huge amount of good, but maybe aren't particularly well known. And so what we want to do is empower those people that work with us to have the ability to impact on those individual charities. The other way that we want to do good and is essentially operate in a, in, in a or enhanced charitable service is through pro bono as well. So most recently we've had a contact of ours who's, uh, who, who will be introducing us actually to a homelessness charity uh, based in the, in the Northwest. And we're looking to work with the homelessness charity to help increase their supply of housing. And we will do that on a pro bono basis. So that's not something that we're doing because we're going to get any monetary gain from it. But what we want to use is our expertise, our institutional approach to help deliver more housing um, and then hopefully begin to deal with some of the issues associated with homelessness in that particular uh, city. And that's something that we wish to do across the board. So we're very encouraging charities approaching us and asking us how can we facilitate their work. So it's not only about providing monetary donations, which of course we will do, but also using our time and skill and expertise to be able to materially impact the charities with, with whom we work. That's great. Thank you, Shaquille. And you're not in this venture alone by any stretch. And um, Lily and Sean will be familiar, I'm sure, to many of the people listening to this. So there's there's the three of you in the senior team with a legal background. And I have to ask, you know, we, we're a law firm to pull it back to law a little bit. Do you think there is an element of your legal background, the three of you, that sets you up for success with this new venture? I would sincerely hope so. And it was very much a conscious decision to recruit Lillian Sean. So Lillian Sean were both uh, associates in my team. And they weren't recruited simply because I, I knew them and knew how good they were. There is very much, in, in my humble opinion, a skill set, which is relatively rare, that commercial lawyers possess, that allows them to potentially be successful in business. And, and also to be successful in all aspects of business, not only just being profitable, but actually in how one operates. So if I give a, a few examples of that, we as solicitors are, are regulated. So we have professional obligations, whether we are practicing solicitors or not. What that then means is when you liaise with the counterpart, they realize that actually there are consequences if you do something which isn't ethical. And others may behave in those ways, but we would never behave in those ways. The other really important thing, particularly from an, from an investor facing perspective, is risk mitigation. 
And so ultimately investors want to know and counterparties want to know that you will deliver on your word and that actually the money that they provide and that they invest is safe and secure. And so we as three solicitors have provided a lot of comfort given our status and given our reputation that that we will operate in a very uh, decent, ethical and fair way. Turning then to the skill set, I think a lot of what we, we've done as a business is very much leverage of that skill set, working across multiple transactions, working with multiple counterparties, all with a view to a share day. So in the same way as when I was a partner at CMS, I would be acting for a client with a view to assisting that client lend money or borrow money. That was the aim. The aim in the business for Zunique is very is to, to do good and to deliver projects ground up or refurbishments, whatever it may be, and conversions. And to do that in a way that generates reciprocity and generates long-term mutually beneficial relationships. And that's exactly what I was doing as a partner. The other real positive is the standards of one's professionalism are often stand out in the real estate world just on the basis that a lot of a lot of operators in, in real estate don't necessarily come from a professional kind of city legal background or city type firm. And so for us as a business, uh, that's a real key uh, distinguishing feature. So the choices with respect to senior management team uh, to date have very much been working with people that, that I've known and that we as a, as a business know, and that can generate, that can differentiate ourselves as a business. What we are doing in what we're in the process of doing is going through a large equity raise. And as part of that, we as a business are going to be expanding fairly significantly. So we'll be going from four people to around about 19 people within six months. And then we're likely to double that number uh, probably within 12 to 18 months thereafter. But as part of that, we're then going to, we're then going to be recruiting people with a core skill set for, for their particular role. So for example, we'll be recruiting a chief technical officer who will be able to take developments through. We'll be recruiting a, a CFO. Uh, we're recruiting a senior legal counsel. So they will all come on board, uh, hopefully within the next six months. It's fascinating to hear the growth, Pekil, and obviously we, we wish you all the very best um, with the business. Current economic conditions are obviously having their impact felt across various subsectors of, of the finance market. And so just bringing it back to Islamic finance again, can you give us your expert view on the current status of the Islamic finance market and or the trends that you expect to see going forward? Yes, of course. So I think there's a if I, if I may focus specifically on the UK, then I can speak, speak a little bit more globally thereafter. With respect to the UK, there was, if you were to go back to, say, a decade ago, when David Cameron, as the, the then Prime Minister, confirmed the announcement that there would be a UK sovereign Sukuk, there was a real buzz around the sector. And I think what's happened is over time that that buzz is slightly diminished. And I, th- I see it now as very much coming back. So I was at an industry event in September of this year, and it felt very much that the industry was was really poised for, for great growth in the UK. A lot of that is on the basis that the product offering within Islamic finance has grown. And I think that's very much a, a, a broader point around the global Islamic finance industry. Because as the number of products have grown, particularly to match those that are on offer in the conventional uh, financial world, that has driven more demand into Islamic finance. And I read a really interesting t- statistic, which was that one of the ratings agencies, I think, expects Islamic finance to grow in 2024 by double digits. If you compare that with conventional finance or, or broadly uh, GDP growth and so on, then that's outperforming. 
So you may expect that from a, a sector which is smaller, but actually it shows continued growth from Islamic finance. Specifically with respect to the UK, I think, or going back to the UK, I think there will be a real focus on product offering and and also to a degree fintechs. And I think that has then meant that there's been a greater desire to provide essentially retail type products because what were the traditional retail banks, a lot of them have now stepped away actually from Islamic finance. So if you look at someone like Al Rayon Bank, who formerly known as Islamic Bank of Britain, they have now shut all their branches other than a branch in central London, London, which is designed to cater for high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals. So the retail market is now essentially being accommodated for primarily through fintechs because there isn't as much, uh, there, the, the number of uh, traditional banks with a high street offering is just diminishing, but that is reflective of what's going on in the broader financial markets. So very much, I, I think that you'll have product growth uh, continuing. You've got fintechs coming on. And then I think one thing that will increasingly happen, and certainly we are, I think, part of that conversation is around investment offering and how you can provide investment offerings which are more institutional. And I think that certainly has been something that has been lacking and I think will begin to be addressed. That's all fascinating stuff, Shikul. Thank you so much for that. And I think an element of that is going to kind of answers the next question I'm I'm going to put to you, which is something we ask at the end of of every podcast we do. We ask the uh, our guests to get out their crystal ball and tell us, if we're having this conversation in 12 months' time, what would we be talking about? So I think things like the current kind of state of the finance market may not see a huge amount of change in in 12 months time. And you've already sort of reflected on how you see trends going there. In a year's time with your own business, with um, Zanique, with the market, how do you think things would be different in 12 months? So if I may start with general finance, as I've kind of alluded to, I do think that there's an upward growth trajectory. I think it will, Islamic finance will become more mainstream. Uh, as it as it has continued to do throughout its kind of forty years that it's been in existence in the UK, I think there will be significant developments in the, in spaces like, for example, the student loan sector in terms of government desire to create a level playing field and allow people who, who have a particular religious uh, viewpoint not to be prejudiced uh, financially. In addition, I think that there will be the uh, a greater focus on providing. I think particularly to UK institutions, a UK specific Sharia compliant product offering, because there's very much been a tendency to focus on the Middle East, for example, in the UK to focus on the Middle East, the Far East and investments coming on board. But what we found as a business is actually we've had a lot of traction with UK domestic institutions and investors um, and probably a 50-50 split between UK and international. So I do see that as a, as an opportunity. With respect to Zanique as a business, hopefully uh, in 12 months' time, we'll be known publicly as a nationwide operator and who would have transacted on a very large number of transactions in a, in a way which I think would hopefully allow us to stand out from the market. And, and what is really important to us is not to, sorry, and, and it's picking up on a point that uh, Zoe was asking earlier, we have a, a venture philanthropy business model. We have essentially a charitable underpinning where we want to do good through real estate. But what we don't do is lead with that. And the reason we don't lead with that is because with the best one in the world, it's not a gimmick for us. It's what motivates us, it's what drives us to do what we do. But we don't want that to come across as some form of glib statement. We don't want it to be something that is seen to be a marketing ploy because it is not. So for us, it's about how do we continue to grow and evolve as a business 
outperform expectations, outperform the market, which we have done and will continue to do by significant margin in terms of investor returns, in terms of delivery and so on, to be able to maximize the impact that we have. And I think that that's what's most exciting about the journey. It's the fact that there's an evolution of the business, there's a continual evolution of the business. Um, and I think our USPs have allowed us to have really, really strong traction. And I think we will then increasingly be approached by institutions, I think, to help facilitate that uh, desire to broaden out uh, investment propositions. With, with us as a business in terms of personnel, I would expect us to be significantly larger. Uh, we, we've already started the process of looking for new headquarters in Sheffield. And so that will be our, our, nation, uh, our, our nationwide hub. So as a business, I think we would have evolved in terms of the products that we're doing, the developments that, that we're working on. So whilst we will still do the smaller developments or we'll still be involved in smaller developments, our focus will grow to doing usually 25 unit plus schemes, but as, as large as in, in the thousands. And we have some of those conversations ongoing. And then as a in terms of the, the, the business and the personnel within the business, that will, of course, grow. But what we're really, really focused on is not losing sight of why the business has been established and ensuring that everyone that joins us understands the vision of the business. And if I may end on, uh, on one note, it's that I went to a conference recently and it was really interesting. There was a, a speech towards the tail end about values and ethics. And lots of organizations have an ethical underpinning and they they, they want to do good and, and, and they want to use business to do that. But often what happens is there something gets lost in translation with individuals within the business. So whilst the business generally has 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 that ethos, how it's delivered is ultimately dependent upon individuals in the business living and breathing those values. So what we never want to be as a business is have core values and then for anyone to come into the business and ask anyone within the business, senior or junior, what are those values? And for the individuals within those business not to be able to, di to discuss what those values are but actually go beyond that and discuss those values and how we've applied them on any given site. Because that's the key thing for us, that every single development that we do has to be looked at through the lens of doing good. And that involves ESG, that involves treating people fairly in accordance with general Islamic and, and, and English legal principles. And how are we then impacting or how are we ensuring that those values flow through every single transaction, small or large, any, single, any interaction we have, whether with professional services, the wider professional team, whoever it may be, we need to live and breathe those values. And that needs to be something that that's, that's a, a non-negotiable. Thank you so much for joining us today. Walkers across our various jurisdictions has enjoyed working with you and across from you um, over many years, you know, while you're at CMS. And I know that we will all be tracking your new venture very closely and and, and hopefully the success of it. And uh, I think, you know, we could talk for a lot longer, but um, I think, you know, we talk about asking you questions again in 12 months. I think we probably will be coming back to you in 12 months or 24 months, certainly to, to check in and then chat again. So, um, so thanks very much for giving up your time. No, I'd love that. And that's the thanks again for uh, the invitation. It's been really good to speak with you. And uh, obviously, uh, once we, as we continue to grow, no doubt we will be working more closely with offshore law firms. And uh, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to work out who we'll be going to. So, yeah. We'll speak to you one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shaquille. Thanks ever so much. You've been listening to We Talk Banking and Finance from Walkers. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share and subscribe.